Good morning, everyone. Who stayed up till midnight last night? By show of hands. Is that right? Okay. Who stayed up till midnight last night because of the fireworks, keeping them awake? Tried to go to bed early, but... Father, I thank you for the verses we've reached this morning and the application they have for our relationships with others. I see such a seriousness associated with Jesus' warning here. It's, it's strong, it's graphic, and so I pray the full weight of it would bear down on us as we consider what it means to stumble others. Perhaps something that we haven't entertained as much as we should. I know in this, this past week in my studying, I was uh, convicted by the, uh, these verses and questioning ways in which I might stumble others, Lord, and so help, help all of us to uh, appreciate what you would say to us through this and be sensitive to your Holy Spirit. I don't know if people come in here fatigued this morning or if people are tuning in online, somewhat fatigued, but at least for, this, uh, for your word as it's preached, I ask that you would give us an attentiveness and receptiveness and application. I can't, these are uh, dealing with amoral or non-essentials that uh, differ with each person. And so I pray, Lord, I really need your Holy Spirit to reveal to each person areas that they might stumble others because your word doesn't outline every single example and and this isn't that black and white. And so give us the wisdom to recognize those areas in which we might need to make changes or be sensitive to the brothers and sisters in Christ around us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of this morning's sermon is, What are examples of stumbling blocks in the Bible? What are examples of stumbling blocks in the Bible? Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's gospel verse by verse, and we find ourselves at Luke 17. We'll make it through verses 1 and 2 this morning. Verses 3 and 4, I thought about looking at those too, but they introduce a different topic, forgiveness, and really I had more than enough information just to, I actually had to cut quite a bit out of, my, out of my sermon, just to have one sermon explaining stumbling blocks well enough. If you've been here very long, you've probably heard me say before that all sins are not the same. You'll frequently hear people say that, I would say, unfortunately and, and unbiblically. So if I asked you what the worst sins are, and there's not necessarily a, a right or wrong answer for this, I'd just like to hear some, some guesses. So just share aloud, what, are, what would you consider to be the worst sin, or what are some of the worst sins? Huh? Rejecting God, unbelief, that would definitely be one of the worst sins. That's the sin that results in eternal damnation. What else? Murder, yes. Uh, I have that on the list here. I thought it'd be in the top three. Murder because it ends someone's life. There's no way to undo it. Uh, even the, the Bible says the ground itself cries out for vengeance against murderers. What else? Someone say adultery or idolatry? Idolatry, I have that number one. It removes God from the throne that he should occupy in our hearts. Then I said perhaps people would say adultery because it violates the most important earthly covenant we make. My suspicion is this list could go on, and it would probably have to become very long before it would contain the sin that is the topic of this morning's verses, and that is the sin of stumbling others. But based on what Jesus said should happen to people who stumble others, this sin should be toward the top of that list because I can't think of many things that are much worse than what? Having a huge stone tied around your neck and then being thrown into the sea. So this morning we're going to talk about this sin, the sin of putting stumbling blocks before others. Look at some examples of that in the Bible so that we can learn what it means to do that and hopefully avoid doing that ourselves. So look at me at verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. The ESV says temptations to sin, but you probably see a footnote that brings you to the bottom of the page and says that it means stumbling blocks. The New King James translates this as offenses and also has a footnote that says it means stumbling blocks. The NIV says cause people to stumble. The NASB says stumbling blocks and also has a footnote that says it means temptations to sin. And then the Amplified Bible says stumbling blocks and then it amplifies it to temptations and traps to lure one to sin. And so you get the idea that stumbling people or putting a stumbling block before people is tempting people to sin. And this brings us to lesson one. A stumbling block is often the sin of tempting someone to sin. 
A stumbling block is often the sin of tempting someone to sin. So lots of words for sin in the Bible, transgress, trespass, abomination, iniquity, and all these words are meaningful because they describe different ways of sinning. And stumbling is the sin of tempting someone to sin. Let me say that one more time. Stumbling is a sin we commit by tempting someone else to sin. The Greek word for temptations to sin or stumbling blocks, it's skondalon. Skondalon. What word does that sound like? Scandal, that's right. It's related to our word scandal. And it comes, interestingly, from the word for a bent stick that springs a, a trap. So a stick that would be bent for the trap, and then when it's sprung, I suppose, would, would be released. Or it's, or it's this bent stick that sets the bait. And it's fitting because that's what stumbling is. It is setting a trap for someone else. Scripture, it often uses the language of walking or sometimes running, right? The Christian life is described as a walk with God or sometimes the Christian life is described as a, as a race, more like a marathon than a sprint. Well, if you kind of have that imagery in mind, then you can see why the word stumble would be used because the idea is you are stumbling someone not physically, but spiritually. Not, you're stumbling them spiritually in their walk or in their race with Christ. Jesus said temptations to sin are sure to come. Why did he say that? We live in a, a fallen world, right? There's temptation all around us. We're cloaked in flesh. There is a devil. That, those are the enemies we face that all tempt us, the, the world, the devil, our flesh. So temptations are sure to come. They're inevitable. There's no way around them. But Jesus said, just make sure that you're not the person who introduces those temptations into someone else's life. People are going to be tempted by the devil, the world, and their flesh, but make sure that you're not one of those enemies that's tempting a brother or sister in Christ. How bad is it to do so? It looks to me that Jesus provides one of the most unique and terrifying warnings in all of Scripture for individuals that would tempt others. Look at verse 2. He said, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin or to stumble. Now, just as Jesus is not talking about physical stumbling, but is talking about spiritual stumbling, so too he's not talking about physical little ones or physical babies or physical infants, but he's talking about spiritual little ones or what would we call them? Yeah, we'd call those uh, new believers or we would call them baby Christians. So to be clear, Jesus is not talking in these verses about babies or infants. He's talking about spiritual influence or new believers. And why would Jesus have new believers in view here? Because of their vulnerability, right? Because they might be the easiest to stumble or tempt to sin. They might not know better. The pulpit commentary said the reference is clearly to disciples whose faith was only as yet weak and wavering to men and women who would be easily influenced either for good or evil. And so essentially Jesus said, people are going to take the bait, but woe to you if you're the one who offers the hook. People are going to trip up, but woe to you if you're the one who sets the stumbling block in their way. Does anyone know what a millstone was? It was that's right. It was used for grinding grain. It was this huge stone that would roll over the grain, and it was so big that it had to be moved by a donkey. And so Jesus is using an illustration here that would be absolutely clear to everyone that if someone was thrown into, nobody's going to be a good enough swimmer, let me say it like that. If someone is thrown into the sea with this around their neck, it's inevitable or it's certain that they're going to end up drowning. Now, do you think Jesus meant this literally? He didn't. We've talked many times before in Luke's gospel up to this point that Jesus would use hyperbole or exaggeration to drive a point home and this is another example. He wants to drive home just how bad it is to tempt someone to sin. And see, he uses this illustration or makes it sound like uh, it'd be better for something absolutely horrible to happen or to experience some horrible death versus committing this sin of stumbling someone. Now, let's look at some examples of stumbling in the Bible so we can learn what it, what it means to do so to avoid. Because it's kind of like Jesus gives this 
instruction here or this warning here but then paul elaborates on it in the epistles for us to understand what it means to do this so we can avoid doing it so go ahead and turn to uh, romans 2 first turn to romans 2 we won't come back to luke we're going to look at some chapters that we visited during covid if you remember i preached a series on wisdom and knowledge because i wanted us to approach that i thought we needed wisdom and knowledge to navigate that difficult and confusing season with covid so we'll be revisiting some of those same places but going very quickly to keep it to one sermon and you're not going to be hearing all the same stuff that you heard heard at that time so here's the context for these verses in romans 2 so it makes sense I, we're going through romans as a family and i was telling my kids the other night that paul's going to explain the gospel in romans 3 but before he does that actually chapters 3 on and before he does that he needs his readers to understand their need for the gospel nobody appreciates a savior until they see their need to be saved so he needs everyone to recognize their sinfulness and he has two groups jews and gentiles and they both think that they're sinless or they both think that they're without judgment or or free from judgment for different reasons the jews thought that they were free from judgment or sinless because they had been given the law they thought that having the law made them good now the gentiles also thought that they were sinless or free from judgment because they didn't have the law they thought well we don't know better god hasn't given us the law he hasn't told us not to do it so if we do this it's okay if we do it we're not going to be accountable paul wants to convince both these groups that they're sinners who need a savior so look at verse 12. he says all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and who would that be who would be those without the law gentiles he's going to talk more about them in verse 14 and 15 just hold on to that verse 12 he goes on he says all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law and then who's that who are under the law or who have the law the jews so interestingly the jews thought having the law made them good when having the law actually made them guiltier because it's not the hearers of the law or or owners of the law it is the obeyers of the law that would be good so in verse 13 he says it's not the hearers of the law who are going to be righteous before god it's going to be the doers of the law who will be justified or those who keep the law perfectly which none of the jews did which nobody does the gentiles didn't have the law telling them right from wrong but they did have something else look at verse 14. for when gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires or they obey the law without the law they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law so when you have gentiles who are obeying parts of the law without actually having the law they're showing that they recognize certain things are sinful and that's why if you go to any part of the world even if they are unreached and haven't heard the gospel or have no exposure to god's word they still recognize that certain things are wrong right like what they still have a, a standard of morality or a code of ethics that's that's followed there lying cheating stealing uh, murdering so they're able to recognize right from wrong but they still choose wrong okay now hold on to that so paul says that they're a law to themselves and what is it that is telling them right from wrong or what is it that is serving as this law to them their conscience look at verse 15. they show that the work of the law even without having the law it's written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts are accusing or even excusing them and that right there reveals the two things our conscience does our conscience accuses us which is to say tells us not to do something or our conscience excuses us or tells us it's okay to do something but either way we everyone has this conscience or that serves as a law to them and when they break or let me say it like this when they violate their conscience or go against their conscience which is serving as a law to them they are a lawbreaker that is sin and they're as guilty as the jews when they break the mosaic law and this brings us to lesson two violating our conscience is sin violating our conscience is sin
To violate your conscience makes you as guilty as a Jew breaking the Mosaic law. A quote I like, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. So if you convince someone to do something against their will or against their conscience, but they're not really convinced that they should do it, they're of the same opinion still, then they end up sinning against their conscience, and then they broke that law. And if a conscience serves as a law, then it's a serious thing for people to violate it. But let me ask you this. What's more serious than violating your own conscience? Tempting someone else to do what? Violate their conscience. Go and turn to Romans 14. So it's a serious thing to violate your own conscience, but it's an even worse thing, according to Jesus, it'd be better to have a millstone around your neck and thrown into the sea than to tempt someone else to violate their conscience. Doing so is putting a stumbling block before them. Here's the context for this chapter because we're jumping right into the middle of it. The Romans are arguing, do you remember what are the Romans arguing about in Romans 14? They're arguing about food and they're arguing about days of the week. The important thing to know about these two things, this is important, give me your attention because this is really crucial to interpreting or understanding this sermon correctly. The things in Romans 14 and in a moment, 1 Corinthians 8, are non-essentials. They are amoral. They're not moral or immoral. So people have the liberty or freedom to view these issues differently, food and days of the week. People are not right. They're not issues of right or wrong because they're not issues of morality. Now, if, if these were moral issues, then there would be right and wrong, right? But they're not, and then they would be essentials, but they're not. They're not essentials. So people can feel how they like about these issues. Because they're amoral, and not moral or immoral. Look what Paul says in verse 13. Romans 14, 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer over these amoral or non-essentials, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block. Notice that. Don't put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So in this verse, Paul tells us, not to do two things. He says, don't pass judgment on or look down on other people who have different convictions than you or whose consciences sway them a different way than you do. And then what's the second thing he says not to do? He says, don't put a stumbling block before them. If they feel convicted about a certain area, then don't tempt them in that area to violate their conscience or go against their conscience. And this brings us to lesson three. Lesson three, there are primarily three ways to put stumbling blocks before others. Part one, encouraging them to violate their conscience. Encouraging them to violate their conscience. This is one of the primary ways to put a stumbling block before someone or do what Jesus forbids in Luke 17, encouraging someone to violate their conscience or tempting them. I shouldn't say encouraging, tempting someone to violate their conscience. Look at verse 14. Romans 14, 14. Paul says, I know... And I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. And what's he talking about there? When he says nothing is unclean, there are some things that are unclean, but specifically what's he talking about here? He's talking about food. And then notice, so this is interesting. There are numerous verses from Paul in the New Testament explaining that all food is clean or amoral. But after Paul says this, that no food is unclean. He says it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. So Paul said that clean food is actually unclean for people who think it's unclean or for people whose conscience forbids them from eating it. So if you have people over and what might be the, fa- the classic food that they might not want to eat to their own grief, <laughs> bacon, right? Uh, or they feel, you know, and we've met some people, and they say, hey, you know, God forbid this in the Old Testament. My conscience isn't clear about eating it in the New Testament. You don't pick out your Bible and start preaching to them about their liberty in Christ to not eat that. You say, okay, well, we'll go ahead, and we'll just make sure we get that away from the table, and, and we won't eat that. Sorry, we, we weren't aware you felt that way, but it's absolutely no problem with us. Skip to verse 20. First, Romans fourteen twenty. Paul says, do not for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, 
but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So it's wrong to stumble people by encouraging them to eat food that they think is unclean because their conscience forbids them from eating it. And isn't it interesting? It's, it's really kind of counterintuitive because if you didn't know these chapters, you would think that the loving thing or mature thing to do would be to preach to these people about their liberty in Christ and how they can eat these things. But in the process, you could cause someone to violate their conscience. So Paul says, don't, don't do that. He goes so far as to say a brother could be destroyed. And that's really strong language, right? What does he mean by that? Well, it doesn't mean we could, a brother or sister in Christ could lose their salvation. That's not what's in view there. But he, and he's not talking physically, he's talking spiritually. He means that it's very serious detriment to their spiritual growth because after you talk them into eating, their conscience is going to be stricken. They're going to feel bad about what they did, and then they're going to condemn themselves. Look in verse 21. He says, it's not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. And when Paul uses the word faith there, it's almost synonymous with liberties. And so he's saying to keep your liberties or keep your freedom in Christ between who? You and God. In other words, don't start preaching those liberties to others who don't have those liberties, even if you think you're doing something encouraging because you could tempt them to sin or you could cause them to violate their conscience. Look at the rest of the verse. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves or on himself for what he thinks is acceptable. And this is interesting. That, that, this sounds a little confusing. Let me explain it and then I'll read it one more time. If we cause others to violate their conscience... Who else's conscience should be stricken by that? Ours. Let me say it one more time. If you cause someone to violate their conscience, your conscience should be violated because you just did something wrong. So Paul says it's a wonderful thing if you don't cause people to violate their conscience because then you can have a clear conscience yourself. And with that in mind, look back at verse 22 again. He says, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself or condemn himself or be convicted for what he approves. So you can have a clear conscience too. Look at verse 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, when it says is condemned in this verse, Paul's talking about that person eating when their conscience forbid them, and then that person is condemned. Who condemns that person? When it says is condemned, who's doing the condemning? Himself. It's not God. This verse is not talking about God condemning the person. The verse is talking about the person condemning himself. But whoever has doubts is condemned his conscience condemns him. Later, he has doubts about what he did, and he condemns himself. Now, up to this point, maybe you've kind of wondered, is it really sin? Like when I talked about violating our conscience, and I said that's sinful, I said that because of this verse. Because you could listen to me and say, is it really that serious of a thing to violate our conscience that we would call it sin? I said that because of this verse. It says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If someone can't do that in good conscience, when it says proceed from faith, it means, it means they can't do it in good conscience. It is sinful for them. Now, turn to the right to 1 Corinthians 8. <clears throat> Wait, did I say turn to the right? Yeah, turn to the right. Excuse me, it is to the right. <laughs> Sorry about that. And most of you probably know that 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14 are similar. Romans 14, they're arguing about food and days of the week. 1 Corinthians 8, they're arguing about meat sacrificed to idols. And here's how this predicament developed. The Greeks and Romans were polytheistic, which means they believed in many gods. And they were also polydemonistic, which means that they believed in many demons and evil spirits. And they believed that these evil spirits would try to invade or find their way into human bodies by attaching themselves to food before it was eaten 
And the only way that these demons or evil spirits could be removed from the food was if that food was sacrificed to idols. And so sacrificing food to idols served two purposes. First, to decontaminate that food of any demonic presence. And then second, to, gain, to please or to worship that demon or to gain favor from that, from that demon. Now, when the animal is sacrificed, some of it was burned on the altar, and the meat that was not burned was then served at these wicked pagan feasts. Not all of the meat would be eaten, though, and then some of the meat that was left over was going to be sold in that temple to raise money for that temple. Now, because there's no refrigeration in that day, they have to sell this meat very quickly. And so you can imagine that it's Think of this process, how quickly this goes. This meat is going to be used in the worship of an idol or demon. It's going to then be consumed in this wicked pagan feast, and then it's going to be sold and could quickly find itself on the plate of a new believer. So you have these two groups regarding this meat. Oh, one other thing that's interesting because meat sacrificed to idols was less attractive or less marketable than meat that wasn't sacrificed to idols, it was cheaper or it was sold as a discount. Okay, now keep that in mind. So now people find themselves in two groups. The first group is in verses 4 through 6. Look there with me. Here's the first group in verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols... This group says, we know that an idol has no real existence, an idol is not real, there's only one God, that there is no God but one, verse 5, although there may be so-called gods or make-believe or imaginary gods in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, verse 6, yet for us there is only one God the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Something interesting is Paul's use of the words we and us tells us that he's in this first group because Paul knew better than everyone that, or better than anyone, that there's only one God and that these demons aren't real and demons don't inhabit food or anything along those lines. And so there's this group that says demons don't inhabit food, idols aren't real, and other, what, what, what would have been common gods or idols in that day? I mean, there were cities dedicated to these gods, Zeus, Hermes, Mars. And so whoever or whatever is offered to these idols isn't offered to anything. I can go into an idol's temple. I can buy the meat. It's no different than any other meat act out there. In fact, it's actually better because it's cheaper. So I'm being a better steward financially by buying the meat that's sacrificed to idols. You guys should be doing the same thing, looking for these bargains. There's nothing wrong with it whatsoever. That's one group. The next group is in verse 7. Paul says, However, not everyone possesses this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. And there'll be Jews and Gentiles in this group. It's not all Gentiles. There's Jews in this group who think idolatry is the very worst sin, so they want nothing to do with idolatry, including consuming meat that had been sacrificed to idols or used in idolatrous pagan feasts. And so they say, what good Jew or what Jew could, with a clear conscience, consume any of this meat? And there were Gentiles who are new believers, because the church is, is still in its infancy. So Gentiles who recently were worshiping the idols at these temples, they've repented, turned from it, and they want to stay as far away from this meat as possible because it reminds them of their previous idolatry. And so the second group says, I don't want anything to do with meat sacrificed to idols. No believer should have anything to do with it. You could give me that meat for free, and I would just throw it away. And anyone else who doesn't do the same thing is sinning. So these are these two groups. And they're both waiting to hear from Paul to tell them who's right and who's wrong. And I want you to notice something. In verse 7, do you see where it says being weak? In verse 7, it says being weak. This is also a really important point to understand because I've heard it misused numerous times in the church. We tend to have or associate a negative connotation 
with the word weak, as though if you're weak, you should be strong. To be perfectly clear, believers are not better or worse if they have weaker or stronger consciences over these issues because they're amoral or they're non-essentials. And so weak or strong is not a compliment and it's not a criticism. People are not more or less mature if they're weaker or if they're stronger. So then who's right? Which group? Well, Paul says the group that's right is the group of people who are concerned about their brother or sister in Christ. That's who's right. It could be people in either group. You can be in either group and be right or in either group and be wrong if you're not concerned about your brother or sister in Christ. Look at verse 9. He says, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, and if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And then in the process, violate their conscience. And so you can kind of imagine this situation where there's new believers who have weak consciences, again, not a criticism of them, who don't feel that they can eat this meat, but then they see a more mature believer consuming it. They feel like they can do it, they do it, but then their conscience, they violate their conscience in the process, and they sin. So Paul doesn't say which group is right. He said the people who would not put a stumbling block before others were right. And so now we've reached what to me is the most difficult part of the sermon. I had most of the sermon finished earlier in the week, but yesterday I was laboring over trying to come up with present-day examples of this. And one of the reasons that this is so difficult is that people do not agree on non-essentials. What is a non-essential to one is an essential to another, and what is an essential to one is a non-essential to another. Or what is amoral to one person is moral or immoral to someone else, or what is moral or immoral to one person is considered amoral to someone else. People who feel comfortable eating meat sacrificed to idols, to them, it is a non-essential. But to the person who feels like they should not, or it's amoral to them, but to the people who feel like they should not eat meat sacrificed to idols, is it amoral? No, it is completely immoral. It is an essential to them. For people who view all days the same, it's a non-essential to them. But for people who esteem one day better than another, it is essential to them. And so my point is, I have no doubt that whatever list I come up with, some people are going to disagree with items, and other people are going to wish that other items had been added. Some people are going to say, why did you list that? And other people are going to say, why didn't you list this? So what I tried to do is I tried to construct a list that in my mind has the greatest variety of conviction among Christians or the greatest potential for people's consciences to be struck. So television, movies, video games, music, alcohol, clothing styles, dancing. Now, my point in sharing this list isn't to say all these things are bad, and obviously you can listen to the list and tell that I'm not going to think all those things are bad. If they were all bad or they were all immoral, then they wouldn't be non-essentials. They wouldn't be amoral. They would be immoral. My point is that we need to be aware of items like these and probably some others that I didn't list and the potential to offend others or cause people to violate their conscience when we engage in these things. So why exactly do we want to be careful with these areas of life? The simple answer is because we love Christ and because we love those whom Christ died for. So why, why is this a big issue? Because we want to serve the body of Christ. We want unity. We would never want to cause someone to violate their conscience. Jesus loves his bride. We want to do our best to love his bride as well. When we put our brothers and sisters in Christ before ourselves, 
We're putting Christ first. We're fulfilling or obeying those words that Paul spoke in Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, does this mean that we can never listen to music or we, we, uh, that we feel we have the liberty to, or we can never watch anything that we feel we have the liberty to because we feel it might offend someone else, or does it, does it mean if there's something our conscience is clear about that we can never do it because of the potential to stumble someone else? No, that's not what it means, but it does mean that if you're aware of this potential with someone and those people are around, then you're going to do your best to not stumble them you're going to do your best not to offend them or encourage them to do something that would violate their conscience. Look with me at verse 11 as Paul basically makes this point that it's about our concern for others. He says, by your knowledge, this weak person could be destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. So here's the word destroyed again, which shows just how serious of a matter it is. And notice the words, the brother for whom Christ died. So this is about value. This is Paul's way of saying you need to be concerned about these people because they're people that Christ died for. He's not talking about the unbelieving world. He's talking about brothers and sisters that we're going to spend eternity with, that Christ was willing to hang on that cross and take the punishment for their sins. And so he says we must be concerned for those people. They're incredibly valuable, valuable enough that Christ would die for them. And then listen to this verse, 1 John 2, 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. So John's point is if you love someone, you would never tempt them to sin because of how unloving it is. And really, Sally, there are a few times I've heard this in the church where people have said things like, well, if they've got a problem with it, they just have to deal with it. Can you think of much that's more opposed to Christ than that attitude? I don't care if this bothers this person or that person. I don't, I don't care if they take issue with what I'm doing. They're just going to have to move on. Or if they want to sound spiritual, they'll say something like, well, they, should just, they just need to recognize their liberty in Christ. In fact, I'm going to do this so that they do recognize their liberty in Christ. That is so opposed to Scripture. There's nothing to support that attitude. It's completely ungodly. It's showing a, a, a considerable, uh, it's, it's very dismissive of that person's relationship with the Lord, and it shows no concern for their walk with Christ. Now, for the last example, turn to Revelation 2. The last example of a stumbling block in the Bible, turn to Revelation 2. One of the difficult things with this is you might not know someone's sensitivity towards something until what moment until you do it (laughs) right in front of them or around them and then they say to you hey i'm not comfortable with that or i wouldn't want my kids around that or or uh you know i'm a little convicted about that or could we please not and then fill in the blank could we please not watch listen to act engage behave and then the proper response is what Hey, I'm sorry. You know what? I didn't know that. Sure. Let me very quickly do what I can to to remove that from this environment so everyone can be, so you can be nice and and comfortable here. Or if if your kids are going to come over to our house, then we'll ensure that we don't do anything along those lines because we want them to be comfortable and we want you to be comfortable with your, with your children being here. Now, this last one in Revelation 2, we're going to look at one of the churches that Jesus wrote a letter to. There were seven churches. He wrote letters to seven churches. We're going to look at Pergamum. Jesus has commendations for five of the seven churches. Two churches receive no commendation. To me, that's pretty shocking because I don't think you can get more gracious than Jesus. And so for Jesus not to even be able to think of two commendations for churches tells you those churches are pretty bad. Pergamum is not in that category. Look at his commendation for the church of Pergamum. Verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell, he says, they were dwelling where Satan's throne is. We better never complain about how liberal our area is again, right? <laughs> I mean, here he says, they, their church was located where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name despite the wickedness around them. He says, you hold fast to my name. You didn't deny my faith 
even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, which must have been a time of considerable persecution, Antipas would have been uh, probably the pastor of the church. Apparently, he'd probably been martyred for his faith. Tradition says that he was burned to death inside of a, a brass bowl. And so they faced intense persecution, even where their pastor was martyred, but they still held, held fast to Christ. He says, yet you held fast to my name. You didn't deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. And then he says again, where Satan dwells. So what does that mean? Here's my suspicion. Satan is not omnipresent like God. He can only be in one location at a time. And so it seems that he probably literally was uh, located here. Maybe like his headquarters was here. There's a whole list of temples and idolatry that was part of this city here. I was just trying to shorten the sermon, so I didn't go into a whole lot of detail about it. It was one of the sections I removed, but they were in this area that was just steeped in idolatry, and perhaps that's why Satan's headquarters was there. So one of the real credits was them holding fast to Christ, but they weren't perfect. And look at the, re- the rebuke in verse 14. He says, I have a few things against you. You've put some there in the church, or you have some there in the church who hold the teaching of Balaam. It says, Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block before Israel so that they would do these two things, eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Balaam is probably the best example in Scripture of putting stumbling blocks before people or encouraging people to sin. And this brings us to the next part of Lesson 3. There are primarily three ways to put stumbling blocks before others. Part 2, encouraging them to sin. Part 2, encouraging them to sin. So it says, Balaam put a stumbling block before Israel. He did this by encouraging them to sin in two ways. Interestingly, one of the ways that Balaam encouraged Israel to sin, we have been talking about in 1 Corinthians 8. He encouraged them to eat, it says, meat, sacrifice to idols, and violate their consciences in the process. And then the second thing he did, he tempted them to just straight sin by practicing sexual immorality. And so this is the other way that we can put a stumbling block before others. It has, you're not tempting them to violate their conscience, you're tempting them to violate God's word. Because if someone violates their conscience, it's not necessarily forbidden by God's word. But Balaam was tempting the Israelites to do something that was absolutely forbidden by God's word. He was telling Balak to get Israel to straight sin. So let me remind you of this account with Balaam. And my suspicion is most of you, are, or maybe all of you are familiar with most of the story with Balaam, but there might be part of the story with Balaam that you're not familiar with. So the part that you're probably familiar with is Israel is on this, on this kind of war path through, is, through the wilderness. They're defeating all of the enemies that they face, Sion and Og, some in, incredibly impressive em, enemies that I think many people thought were, uh, couldn't be defeated. And Balak looks and he sees Israel who actually had no intention of doing anything to them, but coming toward the land of Moab. Balak is king of Moab. He sees Israel heading toward him, and he's terrified, and he knows, I cannot defeat the Israelites militarily, or I cannot defeat them physically. So I know what I'll do. I will try to defeat them spiritually. I will hire this very mysterious individual named Balaam to come and then curse Israel and then weaken them so that I can defeat them. So Balak hires Balaam, he brings him to curse Israel, but what happened every single time that Balaam opened his mouth to curse Israel? He blesses them, and Balak is frustrated by this, he continually moves um, Balaam around to different, Balak continually moves Balaam around to different locations, I'm not sure why he believed that different locations were going to allow him to curse Israel instead of bless. But every time Balaam opens his mouth from any location he's placed, he still just continues to spill out blessings on the nation. Finally, Balak's had enough, and he says, I don't want you to say anything else, and he just fires him. And in the process, Balaam didn't get the money because he hadn't done what uh, Balak had hired him to do. But Balaam still wanted the money. And so Balaam tells Balak, 
I know what you can do if you want to see Israel cursed. I couldn't curse them, but I can tell you how to get their God to curse them. So Balaam tells Balak, Balak is king of the wicked Moabites, and Balaam says, you need to take your prostitutes and you need to have them march through the camp of Israel. And when the men see the prostitutes, they will engage them. And because that sort of engagement was also typically tied with religious activity, Balaam said, march your Moabite prostitutes through the camp. The Israelite men will engage with the prostitutes and will also engage in the Moabite prostitutes' idolatry at the same time. And their God will become furious at the Israelites doing this, and then he'll punish them. You won't even have to worry about it. Their God will be so angry at their sin that he will punish them. And Balak did this, and it worked perfectly. The Israelite men began engaging with these Moabite prostitutes, engaging in idolatry with them. God becomes furious, and he sends this plague through the camp of Israel. Does anyone remember when the plague stopped? One of the Israelite men decided to engage with one of the Moabite prostitutes in front of the tent of meeting, which is where God's presence was prior to the construction of the, of the temple. And so in this very high-handed, in-God's-face kind of way, this Israelite man engages with this prostitute right before God, and this man Phineas, in his anger, sees this happen. And he can't handle it, and he takes this spear, and he just throws it through the Israelite man. And then God looks, and he says, that pleases me. There's a man that is as zealous, as zealous for my name as I am for my name, and that finally brought the plague to a halt. But the plague had already went out and had weakened the nation. Did I tell you guys lesson three already? Or did I tell you part two of lesson three? Okay, good. Okay, so, so listen to this. Numbers 31, verse 16. Behold, Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. That's where the prostitutes marched to the camp. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord, exactly like he said would happen. But I want you to listen to one part in particular. Listen. Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. That is exactly what putting a stumbling block means. It's tempting someone to act treacherously against the Lord, or it's giving advice. That's what it says. It says Balaam gave advice. It is giving someone advice that leads them to sin or act treacherously in their relationship with God. So we're not talking about people violating their conscience. We're talking about telling someone to do something that Scripture flat out forbids or says is sinful. So it's black and white, and this is when you get a millstone around your neck, or it'd be better for that to happen to you. Present-day examples of this would be any time you encourage someone to do something like lie, cheat, steal, commit adultery. Now, the title of this sermon, what are examples of stumbling blocks in the Bible. And the main point of the sermon was to identify these stumbling blocks so that we're familiar with them and then we can avoid putting them before others. But there is, interestingly, one more example of a stumbling block in the Bible that, believe it or not, we are supposed to put before others. Any guesses what stumbling block that is? What is the stumbling block we're supposed to put before others? Christ. And this brings us to the last part of lesson three. There are primarily three ways to put stumbling blocks before others. Part three, preaching Christ. Preaching Christ. I had to change lesson one. I added the word often. I added the word often to lesson one simply because I couldn't say that it's always a stum- it's tempting someone to sin. Preaching Christ is putting a stumbling block before others because Christ is a stumbling block. 1 Corinthians one twenty three, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Romans 9.33, as it's written, behold, I'm laying in Zion 
a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 1 Peter 2.8, speaking of Christ, he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So why is Jesus a stumbling block and a rock of offense? Well, he's a stumbling block because people stumble over him. Every single person who hears the gospel and rejects it has just stumbled over Christ. Why is Christ an offense? Or why is Christ repeatedly called a rock of offense? Because the gospel offends. Why is the gospel offensive? Because the gospel tells you what? What are the offensive things the gospel tells you about yourself? You're a sinner. You are not good enough to go to heaven. Probably the most, what? Can you imagine anything more offensive than this? You deserve to go to hell. That is the most offensive thing you could ever say to someone. But that's what the gospel screams. The gospel screams that every person deserves to go to hell. I can't imagine something. What could you say that could be more offensive than that? That is the most offensive thing you could ever say to someone. And that is why Christ is so offensive, because God sent Christ so people would not have to receive the punishment that our sins deserve. But to preach the gospel is to tell people, you are a sinner, you're not good enough to go to heaven, and in fact, you've been sinful enough that you deserve to spend eternity in hell. So Christ is very offensive, and he is definitely a stumbling block that we should put before people. Now, service is going to conclude a little differently, as we talked about with Jake's ordination. After that, if you have any questions or I could pray for you in any way, I'll be up front, and I'd consider it a privilege to be able to speak with you. Father, I thank you for these verses and the great application they have for us and our relationships with others. Help us to be considerate of our brothers and sisters in Christ to uh, be aware of others' consciences, recognizing that being weak or strong, and I think we're all weak and strong in different ways, to be weak in area. One area doesn't mean to be weak every, in every area. We all have the different ways our consciences convict us, Lord, and help us to be sensitive to each other, always desiring to avoid putting a stumbling block um, before everyone. Help us to obey those powerful verses in Philippians 2 where we would esteem others greater than ourselves. I thank you for this time, Lord, and for this sermon. Help us to take it with us and apply it to our lives with our brothers and sisters, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.